All right. Well, welcome to a special edition of the Empire Podcast. We are joined today by novelist, graphic novelist, everythingist, Twitterist, uh, Neil Gaiman. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Um, and uh, we're talking, uh, I think I want to start off with your, your new book, uh, The Ocean at the End of the Lane, which I think is out today, actually. Um, I loved this. I thought this was absolutely fantastic. I was, I was just saying it's the kind of book that not only, you know, is a, is a very good story in, its, in itself, but gave me lots of memories of being a child. And I kept having sort of flashbacks to being little and being very concerned when my dad went out to cut the lawn that he'd cut some of the daisies and I had to go out and pick them. Weird things came back to me that had nothing to do with what was going on in the page, but it was just very evocative of that time in your life. I, I, it's really interesting as a writer because in some ways it, you sort of almost have the idea that you're not meant to write about children. If you're writing about children, it's a children's book. And I wanted to do a story that had children in it, mm. a, a, a seven-year-old viewpoint character, and I wanted it to be filled with magic and weirdness and scary stuff, and absolutely wanted it to be for adults. Mm. I loved the idea that you'd be talking to adults about things that they all have in common, which is they've all been kids at some point, and a lot of them haven't forgotten mm. or, but a lot of them have sort of covered stuff up. And my favourite reaction from readers on this so far is just people coming up to me and saying, you wrote about my childhood. And I'd say, oh, well, well, tell me about your childhood. And it becomes very apparent that they had a childhood that was nothing like the childhood in the book, yeah. except that because I was so very specific about the way that the narrator thinks, and he's seven, and I'm just going in there and plundering everything that I thought and the way that I saw the universe when I was seven, mm. that weird specificness somehow becomes universal. Mm. How did you channel your inner seven-year-old? Was there a... It was a certain glass of Ribena that you drank that reminded you of... You know, I wish... Um, I wish I could actually point to any one thing and go, well, I did this sort of... this wonderful seven-year-old thing. Um, I really didn't. There was lots of just trying to remember. And, well, actually, even more of it was it, it was something that happened on the fly. It happened while I was writing because I'm sitting there writing stuff and just going, okay, if this had been me, you know, it's, people go, is it autobiographical? No, it's obviously not autobiographical. It's filled with weird stuff that's <laughs> made up. But very much going, okay, if this had been me, how would I have reacted? What would I have thought? What was I doing at that time? How did that react? Um, and taking that kind of thing. You know, there's a lovely moment in the book where our protagonist escapes by climbing down a drainpipe. And he climbs down a drainpipe because he's learned previously to climb up and down drainpipes because kids in books climb up and down drainpipes. And that's how he learned how to do it. Um, which is exactly the way that I used to think. I'd, I'd learned how to climb drainpipes. I learned how to climb trees, even though I was terrified of climbing trees. I wasn't the kind of kid who goes, oh, look, a tree, a tree I will climb it. I was the kind of kid that went, oh, I've read in books that kids climb trees, so I'd better do this because I'm a kid. And, you know, you're 50 feet up going, I'm sure this isn't sensible. <laughs> I mean that that love of books that the the unnamed really protagonist has is uh, is something that probably makes it chime with a lot of people because I would imagine that a lot of people who are you know readers now are readers because they grew up living in books and living through books and uh, using them as either a refuge or an inspiration or a play play pen or whatever. 
It, it is fascinating that non-readers can almost never understand the concept of a book as a place that you can go. Mm. And some, even some adult readers have forgotten that books can be places. You can absolutely, you know, when things are intolerable, when things are difficult, when things are scary, when weird stuff is happening, when you're in trouble, when you're stressed, you can pick up a favourite book and go back to that place. Yeah. And it's like going on holiday. And you were inspired to start this by a mini, is that right? I was. It's one of the books, one of the very few books that I've written that's first person and it's, I think, the only book I've ever done that was really inspired by a real-life event. Mm. I'd done it a couple of times in graphic novels and I'd done it in short stories, which I have to admit, I did think that I was writing a short story to start out with. Back in about 2003, I bought a mini and I loved my mini. And I was fascinated by the fact that because the Mini had got bigger and so was I, I was the same kind of proportion to it that I'd been to our old Mini when I was a kid. And I remember saying to my dad, I, you know, I love that Mini. You had a white Mini. What, what happened to it? Why did you get rid of it? We all loved it. And he said, oh, I've never told you that story. I said, no, you never have. And he told me how we had a lodger who... Um, had apparently smuggled a lot of money out of South Africa for his friends because at that point you could only take about 100 quid out of South Africa. So he, his friends, he'd come over to England for his friends and he was going to bank all their money in England. Yeah. And instead, he started going to the casino in Brighton <laughs> and he spent all of his money and then he was only planning to dip into his friend's money until he made back, you know, his system started working again. And once he'd lost all of it, and he couldn't face going home or anything, he came back from the casino in the small hours of the morning, stole the mini, drove it to the bottom of the lane, and uh, killed himself. Wow. And my dad, you know, he told me this story. He explained that he'd actually sold the mini by that afternoon because yeah. he knew that my mum was never going to go in it again. No. <laughs> and I thought, that's so bizarre that something like that could have happened. When I was seven, when I was looking around and going, why isn't the world like the world in books? Mm. You know, in, the, in books, exciting, weird things happen and nothing like that ever happens in real life. And discovering that something had to happen so close to home. Yeah. I just thought, well, that's very peculiar. I'll, uh, I'll think about that. Mm. And it just sat there in the back of my head. Yeah. And it sat there in the back of my head until, really until I found myself missing my wife. Um, she's a musician and... Last year, she went to Australia for four months where she was recording an album. And it was sort of as if she was having an affair. You know, that she really didn't have much attention left over for me because mm. everything was about the band and everything was about the album. And, you know, occasionally she'd phone and she was obviously all she wanted to do was get back to her album. And I thought, you know, I really miss her. I've never missed her before, but I really miss her. I'll write her a short story. And because she likes me, I'll, I'll make it sort of a me-ish short story. And I'll set it in the grounds that I grew up in. And I'll begin it with that mini. Wow. And then, of course, it just kept going. And I, I kept expecting it to wrap up as a short story. And somewhere in there I went, well, it's not actually a short story. And then... Little little way on, I went. You know, it's it's actually, it, it's probably a novella. I'll, I'll, <laughs> and I, I warned my publishers I'd written a novella, 
<laughs> you and, warned them. Well, I, partly because, you know, novella, what are you going to do? How do you publish it? I've sort of written a novella that nobody wanted. And then I finished it. And I've been writing it out in, in handwriting, in a notebook. And now that I'd finished it, I typed it all out. And then I did a word count and was baffled and thrilled to discover it was actually now a novel. <laughs> So did you send her or did you read her extracts as you went? Was it sort of a serialization thing for her? What I did was she got back from Australia and was mixing her album in Dallas Mm -hmm. just as I was finishing it. So I flew to Dallas and I, I finished it, started typing it out, and every night in bed I would read her what I typed that day Mm-hmm. until she fell asleep. And then in the morning I'd say to her, where do you remember? Yeah. <laughs> tell me where she fell asleep. And I'd go a bit before that and I'd read from the next read, day. Read up to the end of where I'd typed. Wow. And then I'd go off and start typing for the next day. Wow. Now, do you get the same way when you're writing that, that she does when she's recording? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, which, which was how come I recognised it. Yeah. And in some ways I think was probably how come I decided the easiest thing was to do the same thing myself. Yeah. Um, to just go off and have a relationship with my book. <laughs> I do remember um, the worst of those was when I was writing American Gods back in about 2000. Mm-hmm. And I had sworn a mighty oath that I was not doing anything except writing my novel. And then I got a call from Hollywood that I had to go in for a meeting. And I, I went off to Hollywood for my meeting went back into hiding after that and I remember telling somebody on the phone I think my novel's mad at me I think he's <laughs> upset with me it's not, it's not doing it's not behaving and they're going do you realise how weird that sounds I mean that's actually kind of a bit mad and I'm going I don't care <laughs> I left my novel I went off to I went off to Los Angeles for a week and now my novel isn't talking to me that's how I felt Wow. Did you buy it flowers and chocolate? How did you, you win it back over? You can't give an old chocolate or flowers. <laughs> All you have to do is just sort of pine after it a mm. bit and hope that it relents. Yeah. It did in the end. Thank goodness. One of uh, my colleagues, uh, Dan Jolin, he was very upset that he couldn't be here. He wanted me to ask you about the connection to Miyazaki and this book because he felt that there was a lot of, of that in here. Uh, would you say that's a fair comment? I think it's a fair comment, but I think it's a fair comment from probably completely upside down to the way that he's thinking about it. I think one of the reasons why Miyazaki and I bonded the way that we did and why I was chosen to write Princess Mononoke and do the the English version of that and why Mr. Miyazaki and I have been friends ever since um, is, is much more in you know, why Coraline and Spirited Away, despite the fact that they came out at exactly the same time, have, you could sit there listing the similarities between mm. them. And I think it's because we both have the same kind of head in terms of our relationship with childhood, our relationship with stories, um, what we feel is important in a story, what we feel is important from a kid's point of view, which definitely isn't what's important from an adult point of view. Mm. And he and I... Um, you know, I, I last saw him, I think it was 2007, when I went out to Studio Ghibli mm. and uh, 
I was promoting Stardust in Japan. They'd flown me over to um, to talk to. I think they just published the Japanese edition of Stardust, and it was like a tie-in with the movie. So the uh, okay. movie company and um, and the book publisher both had me go in, and I went and spent a day with Mr. Miyazaki and. The place he took me that he was proudest of um, was the nursery, this sort of amazing kindergarten that he was just building for the local children. Oh, wow, okay. And he was showing me the ways in which the kindergarten actually made a virtue out of the size of children. And because there were all sorts of cool places that the kids could go mm-hmm. that adults could not follow. Oh, magic. And there were ways that the kids could travel that adults could not travel through this house and about and they had you know this sort of way we had magical bridge across the middle of this building and only kids could have walked it and i thought that that is somebody who is adding hmm. you know adding value to yeah. the childhoods of every kid who gets to go to this kindergarten and i just love the fact he was building it because he could he had the money he had yeah. the respect he bought a house he knocked it down he was building it this fantastic kindergarten that he had designed Oh. And that was Miyazaki. I really, really How much would to... you pay to go there? That'd be amazing. I want to pay to be a child and go there. <laughs> but was... that's never going to happen. <laughs> I was going to ask about a sort of a, a third link there, I guess, because Diana Wynne-Jones, I know, was a, was a friend of yours and, and someone that you admired and vice versa, I think. And and uh, and obviously, you know, Miyazaki adapted Howl's Moving Castle. Um, uh, Miyazaki adored Diana, yeah. too. I mean, it was it, that was one of the things that we chatted about the last time right. I saw him. He was um, talking through a translator and he's saying, oh, she is a witch. <laughs> and, and of course, Diana was. Yeah, she it's the was. only explanation for some of her books. Absolutely. Every, things happened to her. I mean, Diana would kind of joke about it. Um, and I thought initially, when I first met Diana, for example, she told me she had a travel jinx. And I thought that Diana was doing that sort of thing that authors do where you kind of take poetic license. Yeah. And I thought that until I had to go to America with Diana. And uh, we were seven hours late because when our plane landed, the door fell off. (laughs) And they had to go and get a whole new plane. And I thought, that never happens. Except that here I am on a plane with Diana going to America and it's just happened. Yeah. Oh. (laughs) And, uh, And she would tell amazing travel jinx stories about, you know... She she could go places on trains that not only she wasn't meant to go, but the train didn't run. They'd get her there still. <laughs> amazing. And yeah. speaking... We spoke very briefly earlier uh, about Caroline uh, coming out at the same time. Caroline. Caroline. I don't know why I said Caroline. Um, it, I was wondering whether you felt... We, we spoke earlier about whether that's scarier for adults when they watch it than it is mm. for the kids when they watch it. Oh, absolutely. Um, I I remember in 2003, year after Caroline came out, I went on a European tour to go to all the European publishers mm-hmm. of Caroline. And um, I was in Denmark. And a Danish journalist in, I'd say, mid to late 50s, balding, wearing a raincoat, just says, okay, so Mr. Gaiman... You say this is a book for children. How can you justify allowing children to look at this book? I am 55. I uh, finished this book last night, and I walked around 
my house and I turned on all of the lights. Uh, you must not allow children to read this book. I said, look, you have to understand that kids read this book as an adventure. Mm. They don't read it as horror. Mm. They don't have long buried memories of childhood coming back to haunt them. That's where they're living. They, they know how that works. They're there anyway. And they know, you know that I'm dangerous and may well possibly kill this small girl. They trust me in the word <laughs> go and correctly. And they see the other mother as more like, you know, a James Bond villain. The question is, how will, how will she be defeated? And I've never seen any journalist ever just unable to say what he wanted to, which is, you are a liar. <laughs> you know, you just want him to say, no, this is too scary for children. But he couldn't say it because I just gave him my answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, it, but I think that's, that's very true about Caroline. And it's, to some extent, true of the film mm. as well. I, my, my favorite story that came out of the film was um, hearing of a kid who watched it when it was first released. Mm. You know, like, a, like a three, four-year-old who was taken um, by their parent to see Caroline. And they started, and they, you know, sitting on mummy's lap, because that's what you do, mm. if in case it gets scary. And this kid is slowly realizing that mummy is absolutely traumatized and apparently turned around to his mother and just said, his arm around her and said, don't worry, mummy, it's only a story. <laughs> but I remember coming out of the press screening and there were quite a lot of, of adults in need of a kid like that with him, you know, because the kids were fine. They were bouncing out of the, of the screening talking about how great it was and, and the parents were going, oh, it's really scary. I don't, I don't know about that. Oof. Yeah, no, I mean, and, but that's true. I, I loved, I mean, I loved that. Mm. But it was kind of baffling to me. And I think one reason it was baffling to me Honestly, actually, it goes back to Doctor Who. Because mm. as far as I was concerned, mm. you know, I was th when I was three years old... Amazingly creaky. Season. Yeah, really creaky. When I, was, when I was three years old, I watched Doctor Who the right way. I watched it from behind the sofa when it got scary. And I remember watching the web planet with the Zabi and the Minotra and being absolutely terrified of the Zabi and having to go behind the sofa and just sort of, you know, telling the adults to tell me when they went away. Yes. <laughs> and, and I loved that because that was teaching me to be brave. That yeah. was teaching me that it's actually okay. You can confront your fears. You can, you give kids what they're ready for. And also kids are really good at doing the equivalent of looking away. They can mm. go and find their sofas. Yeah. Um, but particularly in America, where the idea is, you know, Disney Channel. It's, it's not even Disney. You know, at least, at least classic Disney have some really scary yeah, moments. Yeah, a lot of scary moments, White actually, yeah. Bambi Pinocchio. even. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but definitely Disney Channel, where you are just looking at cartoony versions of things and it's all loveliness and huggings. Mm. And the nearest you ever get to evil mm. is the occasional misunderstanding. <laughs> Somebody thinks nobody's going to remember their birthday. But in the end, everybody remembered their birthday. Hooray! And it's a surprise. Oh, Hooray. Cake. And, and you're sort of going, you know, actually, sometimes somebody does completely forget your birthday. That's <laughs> yeah. a, that, you know, I, there, was, there was an incredible, weird joy 
into writing Ocean at the End of the Lane and just starting with a really bad birthday. <laughs> you know, seven year, on his seventh birthday, mm. nobody came. Yeah. And that's, that's the stuff you're more worried about as a kid, really, than, than much of the other stuff in the book, you know. That's the stuff that stays with you. <laughs> exactly. Um, we should ask as well about, uh, we've touched on Coraline already, but, you know, we are a film magazine. We should talk film a little bit. Yes, um, So, I, I mean, did having a background in graphic novels help when it came to having your story adapted for TV, for radio recently, for, for film? Does it, does it help you kind of share a bit? It, you know, the weird thing is I don't know that it does um, because the amount of information you want to give people in graphic novels is so much more than any producer, cameraman, director, or anybody actually wants in a script. Yeah. In a, in a, in, 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 you know, writing Sandman, I was God. <laughs> and my job was to tell the artist everything that was in my head about the panel so that they could draw it. Um, whereas, you know, with a, with, a, with a film or TV script, you write it and you give it to them. Mm. And if you get really lucky you will wind up with something that's a lot like what you wrote. And if you're not, you won't. And you can watch things going through strange processes that bit by bit getting less and less like mm. the thing that you wrote. Having said that, I had a wonderful meeting last night with Joe Wright, who was oh, going yeah. to be directing The Ocean at the End of the Lane, and his, uh, and his screenwriter, who I cannot name because I don't know that it's been publicly announced. Okay. I'm not, I can't scoop anybody on this. Um... And Joe was saying that, you know, his plan to do the fir for the first draft of the script of Ocean is to pretty much do what John Huston did with the Maltese Falcon. Um, I think it was Maltese Falcon, mm -hmm. where they weren't really sure how to make it. So he added it to his secretary and just said, just basically type out all the dialogue <laughs> and give it to people to say and, you know, do a scene setting and, and stuff and let's put it into script format and then let's see where we are. And once she did that, he looked at it and went, oh, this looks great. <laughs> looks like a script to me. Looks like, and there, is, there is a legend that I think uh, Jack Warner came in before they all came in the next day and just said, I want the script. Looked at it and said, yeah, that's fine. And signed off on it. So they had, a, they had a greenlit shooting script. And he was saying that's the approach they want to take on this going into it. And I'm pretty sure that they won't be able to hold to that the whole way. Mm. Um, but I'd love to see how they begin. And, and, you know, I love the idea of them using this really very solidly as a template. Mm. I th what was interesting with Caroline was I still get grumbles, which I completely understand from fans of the book about some of the changes that Henry Selleck made. And the biggest change is just the character of YB, this, this boy who's also in the story, because Caroline, yeah. she's there on her own. And, um, and I have to explain that, you know, the main reason that YB is in the story was Henry's first draft was completely faithful. And it tended to turn into a little girl walking down corridors on her own, yeah. thinking things. And we actually had to give her somebody to talk to. To think those things too. Yeah. yeah. You need someone to bounce off sometimes. I guess this, this is what it's this called. dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, I mean, 
are you, what, what about Stardust as well? Because that was a, a very kind of consciously English fairy tale in a way that at that point hadn't really been done in ages. I mean, now we're seeing lots of attempts to bring fairy tales to the screen, but then it felt really very fresh, very new. Do you know what, what fascinated me with Stardust? And, and Stardust is one of those things that is absolutely loved, mm. um, which always gives me this pleasant, warm feeling, and it kicked off the career of, of Jane Goldman. Yeah. It really mm. showed people that Matthew Vaughan could make mm-hmm. huge, world-class movies. Um, but what I, you know, I got to watch what happened on both sides of the Atlantic, and in the world of the UK and pretty much the rest of the world, Stardust was promoted as fairy tale that wouldn't behave. It's a fairy tale for adults, and everybody got that. In America, they just got really confused, <laughs> and they did a PR campaign that seemed like it was a knockoff of Pirates of the Caribbean aimed at twelve-year-old girls. Ooh. And it made as much money in Russia on its opening week as it did in America, which I thought was really kind of a sad thing until I went to Russia, where they were going, oh, my God, you wrote Stardust. Stardust is his favorite film in Russia. Thank you very much. Um, but I loved, I loved that they did it. I loved the amount of joy that they took mm-hmm. in it. Um, and I think Matthew's film really works. And people say to me, well, do you miss things like the bittersweet ending of your version of Stardust. You know, they really gave it an unequivocally yep. happy, happy ending. Happy, yeah. And I go, well, you know, I don't think you could have put a bittersweet ending onto that film mm. without actually making it less. It, yeah. it, it is what it is. I don't think... That one, I sort of feel like like my grounding in comics was actually very useful because in my head, that's just the Earth 2 version of Stardust. <laughs> so it's a parallel Earth version of Stardust, which has Robert De Niro and stuff. And I get um, and I get people who come to the book from having loved the movie yeah. who are really disappointed at some of the stuff that isn't there that Matthew brought. You know, Captain Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, the can-canning Robert De Niro was completely <laughs> something that Matthew and Jane made up. Yeah, wow. <laughs> is, is, there, is there a problem in America with maybe selling fairy tales is, is the question? Because I mean, the famous story is The Princess Bride, which just didn't do any business when that came out. You know, I was I was fascinated. I'm probably telling tales out of school here, but I remember being in a meeting at Paramount and saying to them, look, the way that you actually want to promote Stardust mm. is just promote it like The Princess Bride. Mm. It's the nearest thing to it. Just it's, it's that kind of thing. It's like The Princess Bride. And somebody looked at me and they said, The Princess Bride was a bomb. <laughs> the Princess Bride came in third place to a Dudley Moore film in 1985. And I went, oh, okay. And then I got to watch them replicate sort of point by point everything in the disaster of the marketing campaign of Princess Bride, including basically not really being willing to say that it was a fairy tale and to tell people what it was. And all of the things they did wrong Um, 20-something years earlier, they did again for us. And I thought, oh. And and me saying to them, no, Princess Bride is a good thing. It has lots and lots and lots of goodwill. They've just brought out the 25th anniversary, (laughs) a silver edition, and this is a film that people love. And it's kind of like Stardust. People will love that in the same way. And, you know, 
you're now we're just getting to the point now where people are doing sort of Stardust Princess Bride double bills and mm. things mm. and I'm going good finally here 25 years from now <laughs> everyone will have caught up well it, it does feel like there's a, there's a bit of that going on because um, if you looked at the TV schedules nowadays it feels like you're we're seeing things that maybe aren't inspired by directly but certainly share some kind of dna with with sandman and with american gods in that they're they're bringing these pantheons in to you know i mean buffy the vampire slayer i guess is is a, is a part of this this movement as well but you know you've got things like grim and once upon a time and supernatural and they're all playing oh, with sure. i mean and with, you know? when you get to things like supernatural you're actually you've got eric kripke who i really like mm. And one of the reasons I really like him is because he is absolutely front and centre about going, oh, yeah, we're ripping off Neil. <laughs> Which I just, I just, no, I, I, I'm, that's not meant to be in any way kind, kind of a put down. I think it's great yeah. because I like it that he acknowledges that. Yeah. I like mm-hmm. it that they'll do, they'll do DVD voice, you know, the, the, the commentaries, and he'll say, yeah, we got that idea from Neil. Yeah. Well, because there's literally. Because there's so many people out there who, were, who are, you know, cheerfully. Nick stuff I've done and Deny don't it. acknowledge yeah. it and and I don't actually the weird thing about all of that stuff is I never mind people mm. go oh, you know, look they're doing you and I say well, okay it's fine it, it's all part of the it's all part of the giant cultural soup we're in <laughs> I I as a, as, a, as a Terry Pratchett and I once were talking about it and Terry's analogy was just that of a ladle a, a pot of stew Mm. He said, look, the world of media, the world of fantasy, all of this stuff is stew. And it's bubbling away there. And when you start out, when you're a young writer, when you're beginning, you go and take the stew that's already there and you, you ladle out a pot for yourself. And that's how it starts. As you get older, the longer you've been doing this, every now and then you'll you know, throw in some potatoes, <laughs> throw in, throw in a, a beef bone, throw in some carrots and you leave stuff in the stew for other people to ladle out yeah. and I'm perfectly happy you know, I look at what I've done and go, I couldn't have been me without I can pick a dozen people, but Ray Bradbury yeah. you know, if, if Bradbury hadn't done what Bradbury did and I hadn't read Bradbury when I was a kid I'm, you know, there are chunks of things that I simply would never have done or never have thought of done or wouldn't have done like that or wouldn't have had that or in some cases wouldn't have had the thing in my head that kicked that off I wouldn't have had this weird, wonderful point of view of Halloween because mm. in England we didn't have any kinds of Halloween when I was growing up um, but reading these Bradbury Halloweens with these, you know, orange and brown leaves skittering across mid-western roads well strange circuses rumble into town I'm going okay this hmm. I, I want to do this when I grow up I'll do this and, and I could point to a dozen other people um, you know they're, they're Ocean at the End of the Lane is very odd because I was talking to the screenwriter last night and he said now is there anything I should know in the way of mythology or other writers are there places I should go to research this hmm. and I said no I made it all up <laughs> um, and I needed to make it all up because I wanted it to feel that the, these women in the story, the Hempstocks, predate the pagans, predate all of, you know, they're bigger and they're weirder and they're more important. So there's nothing that you can go and look up that will give you more information about them mm. because I made them all up. Um, but I was doing one interview and somebody pointed to Ursula Le Guin and the, the, the Earthsea books. And there's a point where I talk about the, the language of shaping, the original language. And they said, well, did you get it from there? And I said, well, Absolutely. 
realizing it as as I was asked. There was this lovely thing in Earthsea with the language of dragons is the language mm. of magic is the is the true lan- language, and you actually essentially magical skills are linguistic. Mm. You're learning this language, and I thought, well, that's the kind of lovely thing that you know I don't do it in that way, and it's not used in that way, and it's just this little half a sentence oblique pointing to something. Mm. Um, but absolutely, that paragraph would not exist without mm. Ursula, and and I'm happy, just as happy to point to her and say, yeah, absolutely got it from her as as Eric Kripke has in Supernatural. Yeah. Say, yeah, I got that from Neil. Well, yeah. the scariest ones though were the things that Terry Pratchett and I had in common, which went back to times that we were hanging around and talking all the time. Mm. And people would come up to me and say, you know, Terry said that thing too in a book. Or I'd make a joke <laughs> and they go, oh yeah, that's a Terry Pratchett joke. And I'd go, no, I think it was mine. I definitely told Terry. <laughs> Terry laughed at it first. And then, but there was a sort of point where neither of us could really remember. Yeah. yeah. Like with, with our book, Good Omens, where people say, well, who wrote what? It's like, I can probably tell you who physically typed what. I can't tell you who actually came up with the gag. That was us talking to each other and making each other laugh. We've been talking about films that have been made. Movies that haven't been made include Good Omens. Yep. Now, is that something you look back on with regret, or is it just one of those things that you just go... In 2000, and I think it was six, Mm. there was an article in The Hollywood Reporter... I still don't really know why it was written or why it existed. And I, it was a front-page story. Really? In the Hollywood Reporter, one of the Hollywood Reporter dailies, you know, on how Neil Gaiman was the person who had sold the most things to Hollywood without getting anything made. Well, that instinctively doesn't sound right. I don't believe it is right. Mm. Harlan Allison immediately cropped up and, yeah. and, and told me that his numbers were... You know. <laughs> I'm going, that's fine. It wasn't my headline anyway. But they were just... <laughs> enthusiastically listing everything that I'd done that hadn't happened. Um, and that was immediately followed a year later by, you know, a three-week period in which Beowulf and Stardust probably came <laughs> out, and, you know, a year after that with Coraline. With Coraline, yeah. Um, and now we're in a fallow period, except that during this, you know, the last, um, in the last 15 hours, I've had two meetings with two directors of things of mine that are in, you know, chugging ahead sort of state. Exciting. Um, So, in terms of good omens, Terry Gilliam still wants to make it. Mm. Um, I think it's weird now looking at 2002. Because in 2002, Terry Gilliam had a script for a good omens movie. Mm -hmm. He had Johnny Depp cast as Crowley. And Robin Williams, who at the time was still box office, cast as Aziraphale and Madame Tracy. He, he was had, going to be both. He was going to be both. Wow. He had um, $50 million committed from all around the world. And he needed, I believe it was $15 million to come oh. in from Hollywood. And he had a go for his movie. And he went out to Hollywood three or four months after 9-11 and said hilarious movie about the Antichrist and the end of the world and they said please go away, you're, you're, you're scaring us and you're upsetting us and we'd like it really if you never come back and he was going, but, but Johnny Depp and they were going, nobody cares about Johnny Depp he just does art house movies Wow. And because this is all pre-pirates pre-pirates, yeah and, um, and it was this thing and I look at that now and I go, you know, the world is changing yeah 
now if we were at the point where Terry Gilliam needed $15 million yeah. to make Good Omens and had everything else and had Johnny Depp, we would head off to Kickstarter or Indiegogo or just start our own webpage and say, if you are somebody who would happily pay $10 to go and see Good Omens, give us $5 now. We only need $3 million of you. Yeah. And if some of you want to give us $100 or $1,000, and if anybody out there has a million they don't want, but they really want to see this movie, <laughs> give it to us and we will make the movie. And I'm pretty sure we get funded. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's a weird and interesting world. So do I mind that none of the things that haven't been made <laughs> haven't been made? Honestly, in many cases... Mm. We've had narrow escapes from terrible movies. Oh, really? You've seen the bullet coming and dodged? Um, the worst one of all was a Books of Magic, where Books of Magic was really weird because the first draft and the second draft scripts were really good. Mm. And they were good enough, they got everybody at the, at the studio really excited. And now everybody's giving notes, and now everybody's piddling into this thing because they really like the idea of... of smelling their own wee and it's slowly turning into a sort of urine soaked blancmange and it's no longer any good and dra and now the original writer leaves and a new writer comes in and he all he knows is that the more you change the more likely you are to have your name on the credit when they make it so he's changing everything randomly and then he's fired and they get somebody else in him. but now they've got a director and the director goes away and does his own draft and I look at the script and now it looks like they're about to make it and for all I know they may have done because what I did was just call DC Comics and say look this has nothing in common mm. with Books of Magic anymore other than the hero's name is Tim Hunter and the movie is called Books of Magic and if this movie happens all it will do is upset any fans of Tim Hunter yeah. and the Books of Magic and make them feel used and it's perfectly adequate for what it is. It's just terrible. So why don't we ask if they can pay us off and they get to use their script mm -hmm. and we take a few thousand dollars, you know, they give DC Comics a few thousand dollars to go away and take back the name of the Books of Magic and they can call their hero something else. Mm. Yeah. And they did. And I was incredibly relieved. I have no idea if that film ever got made or not. Um, but I'm just, I really felt that we dodged a bullet there. We dodged a bullet in the same way that, you know, the, the, the worst of all the Sandman scripts, mm. which it was so bad that I couldn't even get to the end of it. I, I, I read about five, ten pages and just went, I can't bear this. And later read a summary of the plot on Anticool News because somebody there got hold of a script just felt sick the whole way. The, the Sandman's, Morpheus' first line, I remember, was, As if your puny weapons could hurt me, <gasps> Morpheus, the mighty lord of dreams. And you're kind of going, oh, no, um, that's awful. and This is terrible. I, he was kept by electromagnets under New York, and then he... And it must have been about 1997 or 98, I think this was, because... Because it was a millennium-based plot. It was all about they had to do some stuff before the millennium. And there was him, his brother Lucifer, 
and another brother who with this, the Corinthian. That was it. Lucifer, the Corinthian, and the Sandman were all brothers. And it was this race against time to gather um, a bunch of magic... MacGuffins. M- wow. A bunch of MacGuffins before the, um, before the millennium. It never got made. Yeah. It is quite probable that whoever wrote it was paid more for writing it than I ever was for writing the entirety <laughs> of Sandman. But it never got made. And, you know, I'm... So, in terms of, you know, the answer to your question mm. of how do I feel about the fact stuff didn't get made, I feel fine. I feel okay. <laughs> I, we, we have dodged as many bullets. And I... Howard the Duck. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Howard the Duck. When I was a kid, I was, I was 16, 15 going on 16. Must have been 15, uh, 15 going on 16. And Howard the Duck came out. And it was this smart, funny... Weird, cool, irreverent comic with a sort of wise cracking duck as the hero and, and with a beautiful girlfriend. It was just weird. And I loved it. And I just remember my actual excitement. You know, five, ten years later when I heard that George Lucas, of all people, was going to make a Howard the Duck movie. How could it fail? He obviously loved that comic as much as I did. And watching... Howard the Duck, which even up to that point had this incredible, you know, the comic had come out and died, but people had this huge reservoir of affection for it. And then the movie came out, and suddenly Howard the Duck became synonymous Mm. with the idea of a movie of such appalling badness that it was simply risible. Nobody now, if you say Howard the Duck, remembers the glorious Frank Brunner comics that Steve Gerber wrote back in the 70s and how cool and funny and hip they were I don't want that to happen Mm. to Sandman I would like brilliant I would much rather no Sandman happened than a bad Sandman I think so with the fans Um, uh, just to move on just to finish up on a a happier note um, American Gods and HBO seem like a that seems to be that. that seems to be chugging along very very well I did the third draft script recently brilliant um each of the the first draft I think the biggest problem was completely my fault. And I wrote this first draft script that I loved. And one of the reasons I loved it was I got to do all of this new stuff that wasn't in the book. And I thought, this is my opportunity. I get to open it up. Look, the book begins with Shadow in prison, about to get out of prison. So I opened the first episode, the pilot episode. You got to see the bank robbery that went wrong. You got to see the, the all of the things that wound up with him in prison. You got to see his entire three-year stretch in prison. And he doesn't get out. You know, you're half an hour into this thing before he's getting out of prison and stuff like that. And there was definitely these sort of rather awkward and embarrassed notes from HBO where they're going, um, can you make it more like the book? We just like your book. Can we you like do the that? Book. <laughs> we, we sort of thought, can you just start it there? So really drafts one and two were me getting it more and more like the book, and draft three then was me sort of basically going, okay, here is the draft that's an awful lot like the book, and we're throwing in a little bit more huh. stuff just to, just to put people up. And I think things are happening or almost happening. I got a phone call uh, the other day that was ridiculously positive, <laughs> and it all seems to be happening. Fantastic. And, you know, it's definitely, all I know is it, Right now, at least, it definitely looks like it will be happening somewhere in the HBO spectrum of of channels. They have right. all of these 
you know, they have, they have lots of channels and it will be on one of them. I, I suppose with all that material, it seems a shame maybe that could be fitted in into another... I, at the point where I said to them, but, 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 and they said, there are flashbacks. Nothing is wasted, okay, nothing good. is lost. <laughs> I thought that's true. Because as soon as you said that, I went, I'd like to see that. Well, that's, <laughs> I, I think it was me going, I want to give the fans something. Mm. And I love, you know, I just love the idea of giving fans of the book stuff where they, where they don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Mm. And are you still planning to write a sequel? Yes. Awesome. Am I going to? Almost definitely. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I know what the plot is, and I know the title. Are you keeping it to yourself, aren't you? I am. I'm Darn it. <laughs> inside. If I get hit by a car crossing the street today, nobody will ever know. Oh. At least tell Amanda, please. <laughs> I think I have, but she's not interested. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Neil Gaiman, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. You are so welcome.